Okay, Revelation chapter 5, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. Last Sunday we considered really what you might call uh, implications uh, of our study of chapter 4, particularly in the area of worship, our worship of God. Worship, of course, being a major theme in chapters 4 and 5. It's mentioned there in verse 10 of chapter 4 and at the very end of chapter 5 in verse 14. Uh, We said that this this could revolutionize our worship if we simply embrace what chapter 4 teaches us about God, namely that He is sovereignly majestic, supremely worthy, fearsome in power, and infinite in knowledge, that He is holy and eternal and omniscient and all-powerful, and that He doesn't need anything outside of of Himself, but in contrast... We desperately need Him and need Him to speak into our lives with a message that is clear and authoritative because the truth is not in us. And even though there is a sense in which God is in us through the Lord Jesus, we do not call in prayer upon God within us. We call out in prayer to the God above us. That is to say that we go to Him in heaven where He is seated on His throne. God's essential dwelling place is heaven and not the human soul. He is seated on his heavenly throne and it is from his heavenly sanctuary that he answers those who cry out to to him. Back in 1 Kings chapter 8, and this is Solomon's prayer, the dedication of the temple when the temple was completed. Part Part of that prayer and dedication, Solomon says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place here in your dwelling place here and forgive. And then several times through that chapter he, he, he makes reference back to the idea that God is in heaven and he's pleading with God to hear his prayer and his confession and the confession of his people, their praise from heaven. Psalm 20 verse 6 uh, Psalm of David says, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus, again instructing the disciples regarding prayer, says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. So we pray to our God in heaven, where He is enthroned, Exercising his sovereign freedom, doing whatever brings him pleasure and maximum glory, which, as we noted, ought to crush our pride and put us in our place. It ought to, if we really understand these things, it ought to produce and cultivate humility in our lives. And this is sort of where we ended last time, talking about this issue, this, this, the implications of these things and, and how this should should affect our humility. So we talked about humility, which I described as a self-awareness and submissiveness or submission without self-promotion or a sense of personal significance. 
In other words, to be humble, we need to know our place or our God-ordained role. To, to have, if you will, a correct or a biblical estimate of ourselves. And we need to come under that design. We do that not for personal significance. We do, we do that not to build up our own ego or reputation or certainly not to demand our own personal rights. We do it for God and in dependence upon His grace. And that is what we see with the 24 elders and the four living creatures around the throne. These were amazing uh, beings created by God to serve him. We've seen that they have incredible insight. They have great power, so magnificent that some might even be tempted to worship them. But, of course, they would never allow that. In fact, over in chapter 19 and verse 10 of Revelation, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls is speaking to John, and John is so overwhelmed by the grandeur of, of, of what he's seeing and experiencing, the, the grandeur of it all, that, it, that he falls at the angel's feet and attempts to worship the angel. And the angel responds there in verse 10 and says, Do not do that. Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All of that to say, to be humble doesn't mean that you aren't graced with authority or you're not graced with power or beauty or influence or responsibility or gifts or intelligence. It means that you recognize that you have been graced by God. Right, so you don't you realize these are just these are just grace gifts from God. If you have any of those things, you don't boast in those things. You you, you recognize that these things come from God, and you live according to the prescribed order and within the prescribed role as set by Him. So you know your place. You know your you know your position. You know your role, and you never forget. As we said, that create creator creature distinction. Now, if the focus of chapter 4 is the throne, and we've said that, uh, we've talked about how how often that that, uh, word comes up in chapter 4, the focus there being the throne and the one certainly who occupies it, if that is the case, then the focus of chapter 5 is a book or a scroll and the one who opens it. In fact, this scroll is mentioned seven times in the first ten verses of chapter 5, so so uh, what does John see in this? Well, he, he sees, chapter 4, he sees the throne of Almighty God in this vision, and then he sees this. And I just want to, uh, for today, just read through this, because we haven't, have not had a chance to do this yet. So let's just, if you'll follow along there in Revelation 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb 
standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, on more than one occasion, we've talked about the curse of sin, uh, the groaning of creations. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8, as well as the longing of God's people to see things set right, for justice to be served, for, for righteousness to prevail. I was reminded of that, of that this week when I heard in the news about the story out of Madera County, California, regarding an hour-old baby being rescued. Some of you may have heard this story. It came out, I saw it on Tuesday, but the event actually took place on Monday. This, this newborn that was wearing only a onesie uh, was basically in the center line of the road. It was before the, the, the break of dawn, near freezing temperatures, and this newspaper carrier as he was going along, noticed the baby in the middle of the road. And so the, um, umbil- her umbilical cord still attached. Um, of course, took, took the little one to the hospital. Uh, I think, the, think as of today, doing fairly well, expected to fully recover. Uh, but the man who saw her in the road and picked her up was, I heard the news story, was based, essentially being praised, right? So they're telling this story. In fact, I heard it on, on two, two different uh, sort of uh, channels, I guess, coming in, uh, in, in in the news. And in both cases, this man was being lifted up as a hero because he had done this, which I completely understand, okay, completely understand. What I can't understand is why we, why we do that as a nation and at the same time celebrate the slaughtering of babies in the womb. It's just like something within you just says, how, how can we do these two things? How can we, how can we put this one story out there and, and celebrate this man as a hero for saving a life of a baby that had been born only hours before and been abandoned? And then at the same time, how can we celebrate the killing of babies? In fact, some of you may have also seen in the news Recent changes in New York, in New York, New York law that allow abortions up to live birth, and allow girls of all ages to have an abortion with, without parental consent. In fact, Governor Andrew 
Cuomo, who signed these extreme measures into law, has said pro-life people, quote, have no place in the state of New York. So very, some very sort of brash, very bold statements about where he stands. And, of course, it's not just him. It's, it seems to be more and more in, in the culture in which we live. And when we, what I'm saying, we, when we hear those kinds of things as believers, right, as, as followers of Christ, there's just something that wells up within us that says, where is the justice, right? Where is the justice? God, when are you going to deal with this injustice? God, when are you going to deal with this level of hypocrisy? I mean, I had a hard time even finding what I felt like were reliable statistics on this, but I think this is, is fair to say, based on what I read yesterday, is that since Roe versus Wade, well over 55 million abortions in the United States. And, of course, they're just reporting the ones that they know about, right? So they're reporting the actual statistics from those that come in from these various hospitals and clinics. We know that many more take place outside of that, of that context. So this is, this is just, that's just a, a small example of what we mean when we talk about this, this issue of creation groaning and God's people crying out for deliverance. It's as if God's people are saying, God, redeem us from the curse, right? Redeem us from the curse. These are effects of the curse. This is the the consequences of sin. Well, well, John sees in this prophecy, of course, he sees things that are very thrilling. But at first, and for a moment, it is devastating. That is to say, for a split second, there appeared to be no reverse of this curse. That there was no one who had the right or the authority to do it. We have just come in chapter 4 from the center of all all things, the center of all reality, that, that reality being God himself, that serves as a backdrop to the judgments that are going to, to come later in Revelation. Because we need that as, as a context. We need Revelation 4 as, as that backdrop because these judgments, as we've said, are so severe and so frightening that we need to know from where they emanate and from whom they emanate. We need to know that as these things come upon the earth, that they're coming from the throne of God and they're coming from God himself. We need to understand that. And then when we get to chapter 5 we see the beginning of the unfolding of this judgment time period in which all things, as God promised, will be reversed. So this newness will come. Uh, That has been the promise of God all along. We we looked at this weeks ago. In fact, we we sort of um, tried to simplify this, really, just to kind of get it into our minds. But we we just said this this is sort of the plot line of God's kingdom program in Scripture. And we just sort of broke it into these five parts, it, starting with creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and then the fall in Genesis 3, followed immediately by the promise in that same chapter, that first prediction in Scripture of the defeat of evil by the victory of Christ, and therefore the first promise or gospel of the coming Redeemer, then redemption itself. And from Genesis 3 onward through the end of the book of Revelation, we see that promise being carried out in recorded history. We see the expansion of the descendants of Adam and Eve, the formation of civilizations, division of nations, 
the, the formation of Israel, the rise of Israel, the promise of Messiah through Israel, the birth, we get into the New Testament, the Gospels, the birth, death, resurrection of Christ who died for sin. And so we have, we have King Jesus bringing redemption through his atonement and whose death is the basis for the kingdom and reconciliation of all things. And then finally in Revelation, with the restoration of all things, God's kingdom is fulfilled as Christ reigns over the earth for a thousand years, at which point this kingdom merges into the perfect kingdom of the Father. But just before that, we have these catastrophic judgments. We have these judgments that come, and for that, we need this backdrop in chapter 4. This is where the judgments of God originate. And without this backdrop, the judgments to come would be difficult to understand. But coming from a place of such holiness, a place of such justice, from a person of such infinite knowledge and a person of of such infinite purity, it makes perfect sense. This is what it's all about. It's about God's perfections that demand it and his authority to do it. As we saw in the final verse of chapter 4, he created all things and they exist because of his will. So it's clear that God, God is worthy and he is sovereign over all and he has, he has the power to do what unfolds in this prophecy. But there is still one question at this point that sort of lingers. And that is how? How? How will these things come about if sin is not dealt with? How will it come about that there is a people? And how will it come about that there is a place and a kingdom and righteousness uh, and, and a reversal of the curse if there is not a human being that is worthy to bring it about? Because as God's people, we know that it has to happen. Sin cannot be forever ignored. Satan cannot indefinitely bring destruction. Death cannot ultimately reign. We understand this as believers. It's that, it's that thing that, that I'm talking about when you hear about stories like that. It's that thing that rises up within you and says, this isn't right. This isn't right. It's something's got to change. Things have to be set straight. God has to be vindicated. The creator has to be honored. But How? Well, in a different form, this question is raised in the beginning of chapter 5. And we have this incredible scene. A scene where you have an ultimate throne and and a dominion that is safeguarded by the one on that throne and another who comes along and is given that dominion. And it's not a scene that is unfamiliar to God's people. And the terminology that we find in Revelation 5 is not unfamiliar to us as as believers, because we have that terminology and we have those ideas. We've, we find in Old Testament passages similar themes and similar terms, and, and especially, and we'll look at this uh, in uh, Daniel's visions. We find this in the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, chapter 2, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 12. Again, we'll be dipping back into these passages in the weeks to come, but we have these, these great prophecies about what is to come, and sections of it parallel what is going on in chapter 5 of Revelation. There is going to be a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, 
And prior to that kingdom where Messiah reigns on earth, there were going to be other earthly kingdoms and empires that would come. The first one to be mentioned in Daniel's prophecy is the Babylonian Empire. And then following that would be the Medo-Persian Empire, and then would come the dominance of Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire. And then we would have the Roman Empire, symbolized in one of Daniel's uh, visions as, as, uh, as iron. It's an interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's this, this uh, iron which represents dominance, power, something that is seemingly immovable. And then we, we have, you might even say it this way, this, this Roman Empire, it comes to us in two phases because there's this initial phase being the one that existed when Christ came the first time in his first advent. But then it's clear that there's going to be this future phase, this second phase of the Roman Empire. You might call it a revived Roman Empire, which will be a confederacy of ten nations, according to Daniel. And Daniel's prophecy says that after that will come one whose earthly empire is forever. How does that happen? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, if you want to turn there, we see this scene in verse 9. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. It says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat... So just saying, think about what we've just come through with Revelation 4. Right? Sound familiar? His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Again, I mean, it, it, this calls to mind not only what we read about in Revelation, but we can think about some of the passages that we referred to back in the, in the first parts of Ezekiel. So we have these wheels with, that were, were a burning fire. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Right, so this is, the, this is that angelic scene similar to that in Revelation 4. And then notice, the court sat and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Now, this one horn that rose up among the others and took out three of them and, and boasted of great things. This is, uh, this is referring to uh, the Antichrist. He says, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. This is the judgment that comes, which we'll see in Revelation 6. And following the judgment upon Antichrist in preparation for the establishment of the eternal kingdom. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Verse 13, I kept looking in the, in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven. So this, this conjures up the, uh, I, the passage... Um, in uh, uh, the eschatological passage there in, in the book of Matthew. He says, I, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. 
This is the prophet Daniel speaking long before John receives his vision in Revelation. And it's essentially of the same scene. That the earth, which had been for a time under the power of these dominant evil kings and ultimately the Antichrist, it will be taken from those evil empires and the earth will be given its title deed and ownership back to an eternal ruler mentioned here as the Son of Man. The prophets had said it. And John is called up into heaven to see the vision. That is what you have in Revelation chapter 5. You have the court. You have God on his throne. You have everything emanating from this place. And the question is asked, who is worthy? Who is worthy? And notice, as I said, you have the Father himself sort of safeguarding these things in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. So we have Almighty God holding a book a book that has writing on both sides and a series of seven seals. And he holds it, and John says, here, he holds it in his right hand. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is that it it points to the fact that that God holds the testimony and the revelation of all all that he has ordained to occur. All of the judgments upon evil all that God intends to establish righteousness on the earth, everything that involves the setting up of this mediatorial kingdom, all of that is contained in this document or in this book. And the Father holds it. That is to say, He is the one who guards it. He is the one who dispenses it. He is the one who gives it out. It is His plan and He ordained it. Or if you think about this, this idea of, of sort of securing it and safeguarding it, is to say no one can tinker with it, right? Nobody can mess with this because God keeps it, the one who sits upon the eternal throne. In other words, no one can stop what's coming. No one can thwart this plan for God to reveal his glory and grace in a culminating way. And John wants to see it, Right? It's, it's that, it's, again, going back to that very minor, I mean, it's comparatively, I mean, John is, this is sort of a, a worldwide, right, history-wide, global-wide sort of God deal with this injustice. I'm thinking about just that one thing this week, right? And John's like, I want to see this come. I want to see these things unfolded. I want to see God's name vindicated. I want to see that. Because it's rising up in John just as it rises up in every believer that someone has got to solve this problem. Someone someone has, has to deal with this evil. Someone must reverse the curse. There has to be an earthly kingdom. Daniel spoke of it. Ezekiel spoke of it. Jeremiah and Isaiah and others spoke of it. There has to be a mediatorial reign. For that not to happen would would make no sense. For evil kingdoms to rule for a time and for the ancient of days to speak of giving one like a son of man an eternal dominion and for that not to happen would be unthinkable. This kingdom will certainly come. And it will be on earth. 
but it's not a man-made kingdom. And just because there's a, there's, this is being revealed in heaven doesn't change that. The fact that this scene takes place in heaven simply indicates that it has heaven's power associated with it. This kingdom will be literal and it will be real with a restored Israel on earth and Gentile nations with them from every people and tongue. But its origin is heaven and from the very throne of God. And it is written inside of this book. A book that is, that is different from what we normally envision. In John's day, the books or the scrolls were made of these long pieces of, of uh, and some, in some cases, animal skin or, or papyrus. Uh, it was either rolled from, from both ends, and so they would lay it out, and they would roll it this way to the middle in some cases, and then, it, and then in other, at other times, they would, they would fold it over multiple times, sort of rolling it up. And if it had writing on one side, then that indicated that it could, it could be read to the general public or even sold, depending on what the... It wasn't depending on what was inside or what was what was sort of the um, the subject matter. It could have been sold in the marketplace. But when there was writing on both the inside and outside, there was the general public description that you could read on the outside, but you could not break the seals to see what was concealed on the inside because those had some kind of some kind of authority associated with it, and someone had to have the official right to break those seals and to divulge what was on the inside of the roll. And notice that in this case, this book or scroll is sealed up with seven seals. So if you will, if you think about sort of being folded over, each fold had a wax seal with the official emblem of the one who had written the contents or put what was on the inside of the scroll and then you also had at these folds not only a, a, a wax seal, but you also had the signature of witnesses to sort of um, uh, indicate the, the, the seriousness of this or even the legality of it. This was on, very, this was on every fold. So why is that important? It's, it's important because to breach the seal without the proper authorization was the severest offense and came with strict punishment. You had no right. I mean, you had no right to, to, to go and to open these things. And since we're talking about not just any document, right? We're, we're talking about the highest court and God's throne. And because of that, it's as if we, we, we read this and say, well, you had better be pretty important <laughs> to open this up. Right? You, you had better be somebody with the right credentials to even imagine breaking these seals. After all, this is the title deed to, re, to reverse the curse, to take back the dominion, and, everla- and an everlasting reign over God's people forever, which means that you had better have the right to open it. So in this scene... God has written the contents which describe the end of all things, the details or the purposes of God's glory, the the specifics of the coming judgments on the world, the characteristics of those things, the timing of those things, the righteousness of God's kingdom prepared to be established upon the earth. That is what you would see behind the seals if you could open it. You would see all of the wonders of that and all that's involved with the end of redemptive history. 
And that is what is stirring inside of John. He wants, it, he wants to see it. He wants to see it unfold. He longs for that to happen. He longs for rest. He yearns for God to be vindicated and his creation to be renewed. He, he yearns for Satan to be dealt with, for death to be abolished. John knows it, that everything is moving in that direction and it is contained in this book. And God the Father is keeping it. He is safeguarding it. But notice what happens next in verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Of course, God knows who is worthy, but He wants seen to unfold in this particular way that, that will magnify his glory. So it's as if it's as if he implemented a search throughout the entire universe, throughout all of creation, to find and to locate someone who is worthy enough to get the title deed to the earth and to reverse the curse. Someone who is worthy enough to reign over his people and with his people. Anyone who has the right and authority not just to open the seals, but first to even take the book. From where? From the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. And then to break the seals and reveal the book's contents. So a strong angel proclaims this question. This this angel of of, of great stature. Again, there's some speculation as to who this could be. Michael, Gabriel. Uh, the text doesn't tell us. Um, although the, the root of, of Gabriel, his very name, is, is, a, is, a, is a reference to strength. But this, this, this strong angel issues the challenge, who is worthy? It's as if the angel is saying, listen, God the Father has sealed this up. Who dares to take it from him and open it? Who dares to do that? And then comes this devastating assessment as this again sort of unfolds. What we want to do is skip ahead, right? I mean, what we want to do is, is we want to say, I already know the answer, Right? And, the, and, of course, we could say, well, well, John knew, right? I mean, he understood these things. And I'm saying, well, first of all, this is a vision, right? How many of you, how many of you just, and this is, I'm not trying to equate John's experience in our dreams. How many of you have vivid dreams? I mean, like, when you wake up, like, you can remember details, like, vivid details. Like, you wake up and you're actually viscerally, you're, are, you are feeling things and you're emoting from the dream. Like you wake up and you feel the emotion that you had in your dream. You ever done that? Some of you, I know, are going, never done that, <laughs> right? And some of you are like, yes, brother, we need to get together and have coffee, right? Because I have some vivid dreams. You know, I've told somebody, I, I dream, and of course I can get up, right? I can get up and go to the restroom or something in the middle of the night, come back and continue the dream. You ever done that? Yeah, that's, yeah. I did that twice in one night where I got up. Went back to bed, continued the dream, got up later, came back, continued the dream, right? And uh, what was interesting, I think this was the same event, 
But I never take my watch off except to get when I go to the in the bathroom in the morning to get ready. It's the only time I never I don't when I swim in it. I, I do play tennis in it. I do I never take it off other than in that at one time. And so, but in my dream, I I got ready. In my dream, I took a shower and got ready. And so when I got up that morning after this back and forth and re-entering this thing, and then <laughs> I woke up and I and my I couldn't find my watch. Where's my watch? And I looked over and it was on the dresser right beside my bed. Well, when I go into the bathroom, I'm a creature of habit. The first thing I do is I take my watch off and set it on the sink. And so somehow I had, in the process of these dreams, <laughs> I had gotten ready. And in the process of getting ready, I did what I always do. I got up and I took my watch off and I set it on the, on the thing. Some of you are like, brother, now we really need to have coffee, right? <laughs> some of you are saying, no, you need to, we need to, do, we need to, you need to go get some counseling, right? That's what some of you are saying. I'm saying it's, it's easy for us knowing what we know. Right to think about this experience, to think about this vision, and to say, why would this be so gripping to John? And I'm saying, well, for one, it, this, it, it is a vision, right? And again, God intentionally wants this thing to, to unfold in this way. Like he, he wants to get John sort of on the edge of this, really thinking about this. And that's why I said last week, when we go through this, it's easy to really, I think, kind of rush through the first four or five verses of this. It's like, let's get to the answer. And I'm saying, no, let's think about the question and just sort of hold on to that. Because this is the assessment, and it's devastating. Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. I mean, think about that. It's like you have, to, you have to, before you rush on to the remedy, right? We have a major problem on our hands. And, and we're looking, right? The church is gone out, right? We're looking for someone who's worthy. No one is. No one who is cursed and awaits ultimate judgment. No one in heaven who has already been redeemed and is with God. None of the angels. Not one of the living creatures, again, as smart as they are, as intelligent as they are, as mighty as they are, as, as overwhelming as they are, not one of the living creatures, not one of the elders who are presented here in chapter 4 as pure worshipers. That is all they have ever done since they've been created. <laughs> Think about that. They have never not perfectly and purely worshipped God. But they're not worthy. No inhabitant of earth. The question sounds forth, who is worthy? And the answer is deafening silence, right? No one has the divine right to do this. Not Abraham, not Moses, who had a unique relationship with God, not David, who was a man after God's own heart, not even Daniel, who was graced with visions about some of these very matters. Not John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ. Not even Peter, who was given the keys of the kingdom. Not one of the prophets of old, of the Old Testament stepped forward. Not one of the apostles entered the picture. Not even John himself, one of the sons of thunder. Right? No thunder. There was no thunder. Just silence. Which leads us to verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. The idea here is, is it's, it's a, 
is uncontrolled sorrow. Bitter sobbing. It's the same terminology that was used to describe Peter when he betrayed Christ. The exact same words. Luke twenty two sixty two says that he went out and did what? Wept bitterly. Inconsolable. Overwhelmed with deep sorrow and a sense of hopelessness. Why? And I'm saying, just put yourself in his shoes. Right? Think about it. The curse of the fall has been upon the earth and mankind for millennia. And since that time, there has been nothing but broken lives. You've seen that, right? Not only that, but you've experienced it, right, yourself. The way that sin devastates children, (coughs) abortion, abuse, neglect. The way that sin affects young people, immorality, foolish living, rebellion, pride, self-love, the way that sin ravages homes, hateful speech, ingratitude, unfaithfulness, materialism, impurity, unforgiveness, revenge, idolatry, the way that sin affects the mind as we age, forgetfulness, the inability to reason, intellectual apathy, intellectual fatigue, prejudice, the way that sin breaks down the body, disease, immobility, the wear and the tear, and ultimately, death. You know it, right? You you know it, you're living it, you see it, you hear about it, I mean, we're to the point, folks, where we don't just see it like in, in like, like close up in our own families and in our own workplace, in our own neighborhoods. We, we make movies, right? We, we create reality shows, right, so that we can watch the devastation. We can watch... The, the effects of sin. We can, we, can, we can watch the... I mean, this, this week, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying all this is just inherently, you know, don't have it. Don't, don't ever watch it. I'm just saying we, the, the floods in California, you see people, I mean, buried alive. I mean, it's like the fires in California, things going on, floods. If it's not floods, it's, it's 10 degrees below and the people are freezing. And it's like, it, you see it, right? You see it through your TV. You see it on your phone, your iPad, You know it. I know it. John knew it. That's the thing is John knew it, right? John was an aged man, right? He had seen these things. At this point, folks, Peter and Paul, they've been been killed, right? The church is being persecuted. Remember those seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor, right? Major persecution. People are dying for their faith. Injustice, right? These these Domitian, these emperors that are that are rising to power. All of that, the bondage to sin, evil running free, injustice, families destroyed, natural disasters that have claimed millions of lives throughout history, false religion that leads people to cut themselves and jump through hoops to mitigate the pangs of conscience. All of these things absolutely wrench the human heart. And that is what is happening to John. The whole world 
spiraling down, moral evil, unrelieved suffering, not to mention unbelief. Unbelief in the hearts of so many who reject God. And for a moment, I'm just saying for a moment, that is what John is contemplating. He's not rushing <laughs> to all those answers just yet. It's, it's hitting him. What if there is no revealer with divine access? What if there is no one worthy enough to take dominion back? What if there is no victor with divine authority? That would mean there is no ultimate end of evil. There is no answer for evil's horrors. There is no ultimate destruction of Satan. It's the same sentiment that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 15, 16, when he said, For if the dead are not raised, and he's speaking about the resurrection here, but he says, But if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. It's that same idea. It's the same kind of argument. So listen, don't rush, don't rush past this, right? For a moment, a question is asked by a strong angel, who is worthy? Who is worthy? And they searched top to bottom, and no one is found. And John is, is literally, in this vision, he is, he's convulsing. He is in absolute turmoil over it. Is the victory secure? Will there be an everlasting kingdom? That is what is on his heart and mind. And he wept bitterly. Because if no one is found worthy, then evil and suffering continue on, and injustice continues, and Satan still deceives, and that everlasting kingdom never comes. That was a blow to John, and the thought of it should be a blow to us. Well, thankfully, that's not, that's not it. That is not the last word. I'm not going to say go. <laughs> well, we're done, right? We won't come back to this. We'll come back to this because it's not the last word. Verse 5 brings the answer, and what is it? The answer is the overcomer is worthy. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to the book and its seven seals. In chapter 4, remember this this behold. This is a a word that was used in chapter 4 to kind of get our attention. Behold a throne, right? It It was to kind of make us sort of zero in on the centrality of the throne. Behold the throne. And then we have this, though, in chapter 5. Behold the lion. Behold the lion who has overcome. Well, that is where we'll pick up next time. I hate to stop us there, but I think it's important. I think that we, we have, it's good for us to think. It, it's, it's like, it, it's, it's similar to if you're saved, stopping every once in a while and thinking about what it would, what it would be like to not be saved. Imagine not 
having Christ. Because if you've been walking with the Lord for some time, I'm just saying it's easy to get accustomed to that, <laughs> right? And, and we don't think about what life would have, would have been like had we not come to Christ, had God not worked sovereignly in our life in that way and graced us in such a way. And in a very similar way, it's as if we, John stops and, and just for a moment, what, what, how would this turn out? How would this turn out if there wasn't someone who overcame? So we'll come back. Of course, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in chapter 5 just unfolding that. Who is, who is the lamb? <laughs> who is, the, who is the, the, the lion and the lamb? Who is this overcomer? And again, the amazing thing is that we'll see all glory and praise and honor given equally to this deliverer, right? That was given to God the Father himself in Revelation chapter 4. It's a great, great, great passage, so we'll come back to that. Um, next week we have our counseling conference. I'll, I'll be out next Sunday because uh, just with responsibilities with that, but we'll pick up in verse 5 in two weeks. Uh, remind you again to keep uh, Phoebe in your prayers. Uh, pray for her, and then if you would also just uh, pray for our time next uh, this coming Saturday with, with our conference that the Lord would um, bless our time. We've got Dale Johnson, with the, the, who's the new director of the ACBC coming in, as well as Keith Palmer and Nicholas Ellen. Some of you are familiar with those gentlemen, are familiar with their names. And then Keith will be staying over again this year and preaching uh, next Sunday. So it works out great because Pastor Kohler is going to, I think, put a bow on Second Thessalonians this morning. And, uh, and then we'll, Keith will come in next week and preach. And then Pastor Kohler will be moving on to some study that we're still trying to figure out. <laughs> he's, he's pulled in like the poor guy in, in the staff meeting the other day. Was, he, he's got so many places he wants to go. But um, So pray for him. God would give him clarity about what to do next. So, all right, folks, thank you for your time.